Welcome to the Relentless Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Jungling. And if you were in the Flowood, Mississippi area on March 31st, around 4 p.m., you may have seen what appeared to be about three or 400 people with uh, their naked buttocks hanging out while they ran down the street. And this is not actually what happened, but it did appear that way. This was uh, part of the inaugural Butts and Guts 5K Race and Walk um, put on in conjunction with GI Associates by Stinky Feet Athletics. And uh, all participants got a pair of foam buttocks to put over their shorts, uh, which was quite a sight. And the reason we did this was it was kind of a funny and irreverent way to bring light to a serious topic, which is the importance of timely colon cancer screenings. Um, Caucasians are eligible for colon cancer screenings at the age of 50, African Americans at the age of 45, and in Mississippi, only about 50% of those who are eligible actually get screened on time, and that's a scary number because it means that there are people who are getting colon cancer that shouldn't be getting colon cancer, that the screening could have caught this early and they're not doing it. Sometimes it's just education. They don't know that they are eligible to do it. In some cases, it's the stigma of, I don't want to get a colonoscopy. But I can tell you as a colon cancer survivor that having colon cancer is worse than getting a colonoscopy, and it's not even close. So this race uh, was promoting the 70 by 2020 initiative, um, the goal of which is to get at least at least 70% of Mississippians to getting screened to get screened um, by 2020. Right now, like I said, it's about 50%. That is not nearly high enough. Uh, So if you are in the Mississippi area, anywhere in Mississippi, here's what you need to do next if you're eligible to get a colonoscopy. You need to write this down. Email stinkyfeet at gi.md. That's stinkyfeet at gi.md. And in the subject line, just put stinkyfeet and they will get back to you, schedule your colonoscopy. After you're done with your colonoscopy, come on by Stinky Feet or email us. Um, you can email me, Jeremy, at stinkyfeetathletics.com. Just give me proof of your screening, and we will either give you if you're local or we will send you if you're not a gift package. It's called the Happy Butt Package, and it is going to celebrate you getting your screening done and reward you for that by giving you a couple free pairs of socks, a free pair of gooder sunglasses, and some other stuff that I think you'll really like. So again, that's email stinkyfeet at gi.md and schedule your colon screening today. In addition, the program is brought to you by the RFP training program. That RFP stands for Relentless Forward Progress. This is a training program I coach and lead through Stinky Feet Athletics. We have individual one-on-one coaching. We also have group um, two levels of group training. Uh, if you are interested in one-on-one coaching, email me, jeremy, at stinkyfeetathletics.com. Or if you are interested in some group training, just learning to be a better runner, having some fun events, getting some cool free stuff uh, for being a part of the program, um, you can visit www.stinkyfeettraining.com. That will tell you all about the program, and you can sign up there. Today's guest is Mike McElroy. I sat down with Mike um, today to talk a little bit about the mind and body connection in training. And Mike is a strength coach for OPEX Fitness and also owns a gym locally here in Mississippi called CrossFit 2717. And Mike and I a couple years ago realized that we had some common interests. Mike was a strength coach and I'm an endurance coach and we realized that 
endurance athletes need strength, strength athletes, strength training athletes need endurance. And so through uh, many hours of hanging out and talking, we realized that we, uh, we had a lot of common interests and we've learned a lot from each other. So I wanted to bring Mike on the program today to s- sit down and talk about some of that mind-body connection and uh, talk about the importance of strength training. Uh, we talked for a decent amount of time, but we didn't get, we barely scratched the surface and a lot of the things we want to talk about. So I'm going to have Mike back on the program again sometime soon. But uh, thanks to Mike for coming on the program again. Here's your calls to action. If you need a colonoscopy, email stinkyfeet at gi.md right now. If you want some one on one training, email jeremy at stinkyfeetathletics.com. If you want some group training, want to become a better runner, visit www.stinkyfeettraining.com. So thank you for listening to the Relentless Forward podcast, and uh, here's my guest, Mike McElroy. All right, welcome to the Relentless Forward podcast. Uh, This is Jeremy, and I'm sitting here with Mike McElroy. Um, We are actually at Mike's gym. We are at uh, gym, what's the name of your gym? CrossFit 2717. The home of... Iron Sharp. It's got a long name. (laughs) But uh, Mike is Mike. Why don't you tell us a little about your background and uh, what we're what we're going to talk about? Yeah, today. so I got into I guess strength and conditioning, for lack of better words, uh, almost ten years ago. Um, and opened uh, a CrossFit gym in two thousand nine, and I've been here in Flowood ever since then, just building business there. And uh, majority of what I do now is work with individual athletes. Um, I kind of have two. Two different ends of the spectrum of people that I typically work with. Um, one being competitive CrossFit athletes, either training to uh, compete in a sport at a regionals level, or um, even a more of a lower lower level where it's local or whatever. But just training to compete in the sport. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, people who have come to me either training just to be healthy. They've maybe they're overcoming an injury or overcoming something. Um, but kind of those two ends of the spectrum. Uh, are the people that I work with on a, more of an individual basis on top of the group classes that we have going on here. So a little background how <clears throat> I met Mike. I had, in 2014, uh, I had tackled an Ironman. Ironman Chattanooga was my first uh, Ironman. And after that, along with some other friends, we had all gotten a little probably burned out on biking, running, swimming. And a couple of them started attending Mike's gym just kind of as a change of pace. And so... I want to do that too, so I started coming to Mike's gym, and we started talking a lot about training concepts. We both came at it from a different angle. Um, Mike has much, much longer experience in the coaching and training business than I do, um, and I come from an endurance background more recently, and, and Mike is kind of interested in endurance sports, um, so that's kind of how we got started. So a lot of our conversations have revolved around um, – different training principles uh, and different ways to, you know, achieve more all the time. So Mike and I ran a – what did we do this morning? We ran something together. We ran a 3K. It was How did the- <laughs> not very fun. We didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't really have a pace or a <laughs> estimate on distance. Or I mean, we knew the distance, but it's in kilometers, so it didn't really help a whole lot. But kind of going back to what you were saying about um, our earlier conversations, I would say in, in kind of big picture – we both were coming at it trying to optimize performance in specific energy systems. Yours was more of a purely endurance sport, um, whether that be running a marathon or triathlon. And mine was in the sport of CrossFit, but still trying to figure out 
what can we do to optimize the energy systems that we're training for and just bridging the gap between our two uh, individual biases coming into the conversation. Right. And that <clears throat> that sort of led into what we want to talk about today was what we want to talk about today is really the mind the mind and body connection in any type of training, really in everyday life and endurance training and strength training. Um, a lot of our conversations have revolved around, you know, mental approach to all this stuff and how it affects and how it affects people's performance. And one of the things that's come up is we often recommend books to each other. Um, and recently, uh, Mike had sent me a text and asked if I had read Endure by Alex Hutchinson. And if you listen to the last podcast, you'll know that that has become one of my favorite books. Mike's only halfway through, but I didn't want to wait for him to finish the whole book because he's, he's listens kind of slowly, I think. I listen um, on two times speed. Two times speed, but you got to listen a more often. <laughs> Uh, sorry, sorry if you can hear a barbell dropping in the background. Like I said, we are in the gym. There's somebody training out there. But Yeah, we like the ambient sounds. We're not actually working out, but somebody <laughs> else is. But so what we wanted, so I texted Mike recently and said, hey, let's do a podcast. Let's talk about the mind and body connection. And again, if you've listened to my most recent, my last podcast, which was Extreme Achievement, which I had recorded live at the my coaching luncheon back in March, um, we talked a lot about extreme achievement and what I started to realize was how much of that is mental um, and what I talked about then was I used examples of survival situations where people had to accomplish things that physiologically were way past what they considered their limits um, because they had to do it to stay alive and then I compared that to people who were managed to get close to their physiological limits without being in a survival situation um, so we kind of wanted to talk about that so that's our topic today, mind and body connection, endurance, strength training. So to kind of kick this off, <clears throat> I'm going to tell a little story, and then Mike can, he'll, I'll just make him talk from there. <laughs> but, a big uh, talker. Yeah, he's a big talker. So after reading the book Endure, I was th- and during the coaching launch, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what all these lessons learn, what all these lessons teach us, and how we can overcome them. So one of the things I learned was, you know, that in you can trick your body um, in when you're running in the heat that to actually feel better than you actually do. There are some ways you can trick by like swirling a drink in your mouth and spitting it out. Physiologically, you're not making any change, but it can fool your brain into thinking that you feel better. Um, but recently, so I, after, after thinking about all that at the coaching presentation, I had talked about what these studies indicate, that most of the time limits are really in our mind rather than physiological, or that our mind drives it down to the physiological. And last week I was running. I run uh, from my house is right on a running trail, and I, I always run at least three, usually four miles minimum. And I ran, uh, I always leave my house, and I run, and I go downhill. It's about a mile and a half downhill to a nature trail, nature park. The trail doesn't end there, but that's always my turnaround point if I'm going to do three miles. And it's mostly downhill or flat, but on the way back, it's uphill. And what I realized was, every single time I run that now, I, I, self, I know that course so well that I self-handicap all the way back. I start measuring, whether it's subconscious or consciously, I start measuring out how, how can I maintain this pace all the way back, or when can I speed up, depending on how close I get. And it got me thinking, you know, what if I didn't know that? Would it be better not to know that? Would I be better off if I didn't have that information? And then I thought, okay, so 
if you're trying to figure out how to overcome these issues, the mental issues, you know, if, if, if heat is really mostly coming from your brain, how does your body, how does your mind know where it's getting all that information? And the conclusion I came to is that it probably comes from over years and years of training. It gets little stimuli and little inputs that allows it to have a basis to examine what you're doing at this current time. And then it forces, your brain then turns that into a physiological feeling and so I realized <clears throat> it, there's times when I take off, when I have three quarters of a mile to go, I probably could have sped up with a mile or mile and a quarter to go, but all those previous stimuli have caused my brain to tell me, no, you can't. And then it creates a physiological fatigue. And you can feel it sometimes. If I start thinking I can't make it, and suddenly my legs are tired. Yep. So it got me thinking about all this, and I just I wanted to talk about that a little bit just to get us started. And that led me to, you know, a baseline. Like, do we are we all born with a baseline that we that we think is where our limits start from? Can we change that baseline? Um, and and how can we explore our physical limits a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you just we before we started this, we, we talked about there's a thousand different ways this podcast could go, but we just out there after our three k run, we talked about your four hundred meter run time trial. Oh. And how your second time trial, you couldn't start out as fast as you did the first time because you already knew what the pain was the first time. So there was nothing physiologically different the second time, but your mind was different because you knew what the pain was about to be. And so the first thing that I thought about when I was when you were just talking was what you know if we look at what stress is and stress on our body, our bodies don't recognize what different types of stressors are. Um, whether it be you know a poor night's sleep, an argument with a spouse, uh, too much work, whatever it is, our, our bodies don't really recognize what different stress is. And also, if we look at it from the standpoint of stress, is basically a perception. So I always just go to the, an example of like if we take an ER doctor who works night shifts, but they're completely fulfilled by what they do, and they come to me and they say, yeah, I work, you know, three or four 24-hour shifts a week. I've got four kids at home, um, but I don't have a whole lot of stress. And I'm on the other end of, this, on, of the table thinking, what do you mean you don't have any stress? Like, you're, you're yeah. completely stressed out. But if he perceives it as being completely fulfilled by what he's doing, then he doesn't have a whole lot of stress. So if we look at it like that, and, and if we're looking at endurance sports or, or athletics or whatever it is, or maybe it's even achieving something at work, but if we can change the perception of that stressor on our body, then we can maybe push the limits of what we're trying to achieve a little bit more. So one of the examples that I thought about when you were talking about your running the same track, I had two girls. One of the girls made regionals a couple of years ago, and one of them missed making regionals. Um, but it was simply because, and if the two girls listen to this podcast, they'll know who they are. But one of the girls missed regionals simply because she couldn't do one exercise. Other than that, she could do everything that the girl that made it could do, and maybe even better on certain things. And so I had them both come, and they were going to do a workout, and I had the girl that didn't make it do it with her to, to push her limits on this workout. And I knew that the girl that made it struggled with, if you're familiar with CrossFit at all, she struggled with high rep wall balls. And there was, on this particular workout, I had a bunch of wall balls on the front end and the back end, and then some stuff in between. And I had texted the girl who didn't make it earlier in the day and said, you're going to do 40 reps on everything. The workout is 50 reps on everything. But I want you to only do 40, and you're going to go head-to-head, and you're going to be a little bit ahead of her the whole time. 
and that girl that made regionals got done and she was like i can't remember if she finished right before or right after the other girl but she pushed way beyond where she normally does because she was like what is this girl doing beating me why am i getting beat by this girl when i shouldn't be like i'm better than her and then i told her after the fact that well she did less reps but it pushed her limits more than it would have if she was beating the girl the whole time so just figuring out ways that you can trick your body and like you said because she knew when i wrote the workout up she knew what it felt like just like you know what it feels like to run that route outside of your house so if you can somehow trick your body into a different route or a different game then you can then you can perform differently on it yeah and if you trick it into thinking you're accomplishing you know it's perception of effort is sort of what you talked about too if you can trick if you can trick your body into where a moment where you're working hard but your perception of it is much better yeah it feels easier even though even though you're physiologically working just as hard i don't know do they mention in that book endure i don't remember if it's mentioned in that book or not but the act of smiling versus frowning during during an exercise so it's funny that when that book said that because for years i have for my runners that i coach i've had a thing called jeremy's race rules and one of the things i picked up on a long time ago was just to smile like when when you're really hurting which is going to happen in most most events i mean if you're really racing anything it's going to hurt but i said just smile it was more for the for inside yeah but it was more just look around just kind of laugh at yourself kind of just just ask yourself do i really hurt that bad or am i just is it my perception of what i feel like um but in the book what mike is talking about is i think this was uh um tim noakes that did this study a long time ago and they showed I think it was they set up some cyclists and they made them ride to exhaustion. I don't know the parameters of the study, but essentially what they did was they would flash like a sixteenth of a second, which was pretty much imperceptible to the to the cyclist. They would flash either a smiling face or a frowning face or some yeah. other words that were positive or negative. And the cyclists that saw the positive images, their uh, time to exhaustion was significantly longer, notably longer than the people who had seen frowning faces um and i think that's a huge it's a huge difference that's probably why when people do races you know you hear runners talk about all the time about how they're where they were out on a running course and there was no fans there was no band so some of that is just seeing smiling faces some of it's just taking your mind off what you're doing and changing your perception of your effort yeah my my that reminds me of my first half marathon (laughs) was my first half marathon was here in ridgeland which is basically where I grew up, and there's no fans, and there's no anything, and it's where I grew up, so there's nothing to entertain me, and it was terrible. It was so much more miserable than the second one that I did six or seven years later. Um, is that the one you did? Yeah, with y'all. Yeah. <laughs> um, which still wasn't enjoyable, but it was better because I went down there with a group of friends. I did it with a group of people. I didn't even run with anybody in particular, but I was just there with people, and, so there were, and it was an unfamiliar place, so I could just look at the scenery and it's just that just that alone made a big difference and how the perception of how it felt i think one of the things i caught recently i think i saw it on twitter maybe with uh i'm not sure where i saw it but it was it was talk they quoted the term motivational intensity and i i think for their purposes their scientific purposes i am totally not following what they're going but i like that i like that concept motivational intensity what i kind of came out with was you know, there's the there's the physical needs, and plus the potential outcome equals motivational intensity. So your motivational intensity in that moment 
you know, you were motivated by trying to accomplish the goal, but you didn't have any outside. So yeah. you had your physical needs probably met, but you didn't have that mental the mental yeah. needs. So your motivational intensity was probably pretty low. I've run the New York Marathon, the Chicago Marathon. There's in New York, you run past two to three million people, and it feels like they're all cheering for you, even <laughs> though they have no, they'll never recognize you in a million years. But your motivational intensity is really high, and it never dies out. Cause until you until you cross over some of the bridges, there's fans everywhere, and you almost forget what you're doing. Down the stretch, of course, you you will hurt enough to realize, remember what you're doing exactly. Yeah. But um, that kind of that that kind of uh, stimuli is so powerful, and it and, and there's something there, and maybe you can talk more about this. Is how that goes because that clearly is just going into our head. Yeah. How does that go? How does that manifest itself physiologically? Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, it, it has obviously has something to do with you know your adrenals and epinephrine and that kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't know exactly what the what is going on there. But um, the a couple of things, and this is kind of transitioning. But um, that book, I think that book also talks about like elite level endurance athletes can withstand a lot more discomfort than non-elite. And, it, and the, the question is, it, the question endur- is proposed. It said endurance athletes were tougher than everybody else. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but um, the, the question is proposed, and I don't know if I'm through the part that ever explains it or if it if maybe it doesn't explain it, but is the question is, do, are they tougher because they're endurance athletes or are endurance athletes developed to be tougher, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which which came first, the chicken or the egg? So are they tougher? So therefore, they excel at endurance sports, or have they trained to excel at endurance sports? So therefore, they're tougher. Um, and some of that, what may, what I think about, and I forgot to mention at the beginning that I work for a company, <coughs> OPEX, and all we do is the individual remote coaching. So we work with a lot, a lot of athletes, and we meet on a weekly, um, a couple of times a week for education and just case study type stuff. And we actually talked a little bit about this topic. This morning on our call was uh, people's upbringing, and somebody posed the question: Am I the only one that was the best athlete in the school? Was brought up in and maybe a not so optimal family, um, and so it was like they have an outside driver of either they're not getting validation at home, so they're trying to find it in the sport, or they're they know they're not going to be whatever their household is is not going to be successful. So they're, they're trying to find success. They have a bigger driving force behind why they're trying to get excellent at their sport, their chosen sport. So not just they can withstand pain, but they basically have a bigger reason why they're doing it. That's interesting because just this morning <clears throat> I do a, for our my training program, my RFP training program, Facebook page, I write a, an article every Wednesday called Wednesday Wisdom by me. <laughs> so I don't know how much wisdom is very actually wise. in there. Yeah, very wise. But just what I posted about today is similar to what you were just talking about. So I was talking about no forgetting your baseline. And I had mentioned this in the intro a little bit. <clears throat> well, what made me think about this is my son, your sons were probably the same way growing up in a gym environment. My son, three or four times a week, comes to our group workouts. He runs. He, he just... Last week, he took uh, some of the group took off on a warm-up run around the trail, and he just took off with them. He, that's his... That's just normal for him. And so that's going to kind of become his baseline is that that's just what you do. And I got to thinking about my upbringing and where I grew up and what my baseline is. And one thing I noticed growing up was that my ability to work like physical manual labor 
was much greater than a lot of my friends growing up because they didn't have to do it. But I grew mm-hmm. up on a farm yep. where I was, and I was just like every other kid. I tried to be lazy. I was, you know, a teenager. I was grumpy. But I still had cows to feed, and we had horses to feed. And, we, and it was cold. It was in Iowa. It was in the middle of winter. Half the t- it seemed like winter lasted all year long. But my baseline became different, and so everything grows off that baseline. James Fitzgerald is the the owner of OPEX, and he he talked about it this morning of just the the principle of needing kids needing to learn how to figure things out, and that's essentially what you're doing. And that may be figure things out when you're 20 miles into a 26 mile run, or that may be figure things out in a business or whatever. But he he emphasized the importance of putting our kids into in chaotic situations, obviously that are safe. So not just keep them in a bubble that's that's not. Not only safe, but it's also not chaotic, and they are completely secure the whole time. They need to be in situations that, you know, they got to figure things out. And I've, I've always told my son when he's climbing stuff up, I'm like, you can climb as high as you want. You got to figure out how to get back down. You can't just climb up and then expect me to come get you. Like I want you to climb to a, a level that you're comfortable with, and you got to get back down by yourself. Um, but putting them, and obviously I'm there, so it's safe. Yeah. So it's not just like, yeah, go do the stupid thing. But putting putting them in situations where they got to figure it out. Um, and that develops a confidence in them as well that they can achieve it and they can figure out what's going on and overcome it. I think that's huge. My because uh, I was not like you necessarily and raised in like a farm where you had to learn those things. And so certain, there's certain times where I get in situations I'm like I don't know what to do here and I don't have that confidence of like but I can figure it out like because I uh, I. Uh, jokingly say, and my parents might get mad at this, but I was very <laughs> secure and safe. I grew up on a golf course. I played golf, like not very dangerous stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's not that not that aspect of figuring it out. When I was growing up, I uh, my dad we lived. We, I grew up in Iowa. My dad would take us fishing in Canada quite often, <clears throat> and we would do. Sometimes they'd fly us out to remote lakes, and just drop you off for four or five days, and come back and get you later. And it he never showed any apprehension, any fear, any concern. You know, we would have, there was no way of getting out of there until they decided to come get you four or five days later. <clears throat> and there were times even when we would bring our fishing boat up there and where we weren't in a, we didn't fly in, but we were at a pretty small camp and we would go 10, 15 miles away and fish all day. And, you know, these are big lakes with rocks and you have to kind of know where you're going or you could wreck pretty easily. And this was before cell phones and, we didn't have any yeah, two-way radios, sketchy. and I can remember with the sun going down, it'd be we'd be driving storms and the wind, the waves would be crashing, and we'd be driving our little 19-foot boat, and we'd he'd let me drive. He totally let me think it was okay for me to drive, just stay with, go with the waves, and we'd have to watch for the two camel humps, which was the hills where if you kept going that way, eventually you'd figure out where you were and you'd find your camp. And over the years, we did a lot of really. Looking back, things that were really crazy. We ran rapids in our boats. We did just a lot of crazy stuff that now seemed incredibly dangerous, but it created a baseline for me that it took me a long time to realize, almost till I had my own son, that that was a little dangerous. Now, I was probably safer than I thought, but he, he taught me that sometimes you can get in situations where you're going to have, it's going to be challenging, everything's not always going to be perfectly safe. Um, and now I, th- I think about that with my son a lot because I want him to feel a little challenged. I want him to feel that way. I like that idea of climbing up. you got to get yourself back down. Yeah, and I don't want to turn this into an interview for you, but and how do you, I mean, thinking back on it, how has that 
how do you feel like that's affected your outlook on like when you got cancer and then going and climbing Kilimanjaro, which I know are two totally different things, but like just that mindset, you know, you obviously had a different approach to, to other people that got the same cancer that you got or that got the opportunity to climb, climb Kilimanjaro. Yeah. And that background had something to do with that. I think both my, both my parents, they kind of, uh, you just, you just handle situations. You just you figure it out. You just figure it out. And I, and, and they, and I was always safe too. Like I, I, the right. farm was a little dangerous. There were some <laughs> things, but I knew what was dangerous and what wasn't. And he never put me in a really dangerous situation, but certainly them creating that baseline or giving me that upbringing made me feel safe, but also empowered me to handle things and just figure things out. That attitude is, I, I think if my parents were diagnosed with cancer the same way I was, they would react the same way I right. did. Like I did, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's important because, like you said, it especially now with the way kids, some kids are getting brought up. Like that's, I think that's important to note that they do need to be in dangerous, not in harm's way, but dangerous or chaotic situations. I so to figure it out. You, um, this is for my wife if she listens to this. Uh, <laughs> she probably won't. She came out and that we were out. My son, his name is Jet. We my garage at home is a man cave. It's just a workout <laughs> area, hangout. But uh, he loves to play out there. I got a climbing wall he can climb on. But Claire came out. We were sitting out there Sunday. It was a nice day. And Claire came out and said, I just saw on Twitter that um, a little girl, a seven-year-old girl, broke the world record for the youngest person ever to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. And I said, seven? I said, Jack can do that at the age of six. (laughs) And so for the last three or four days, I've so strongly been trying to figure out how I can get my six-year-old son to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And that's kind of what spurred all this the upbringing the baseline the creation like it would it would really be not that my son has to climb out Kilimanjaro to try to although fortunately my boys are younger than yours so are they yeah no one's older no they both they're all younger than mine yeah oh and then I'll have a girl that can do it first I don't know that's a lot you're gonna have to do uh (laughs) that's a lot of aerobic (laughs) exercise so you're gonna have to I can can coach people how to do it okay (laughs) (laughs) that's not the issue so, yeah, bringing it back into sport and back into endurance athletics, um, I think if we go, if we look at, you know, some of the things we've kind of hinted around, whether it's, I know you had on, on your little uh, notes there, uh, what were the two topics you had? Not by choice or by necessity. But. Oh, so on the presentation I did, um, extreme achievement can either come from survival situations or selective situations. Yeah, so I think if you look at the the basis of both of those and if you talk to some of those people the the principle behind it is they both have a really deep ingrained why they're doing it and that may be a, a chosen why they're doing it or they're put in a situation where they have no choice but this choice which is why they're doing it so um, we talk with our individual athletes about this all the time of of figuring out why are you doing what you're doing and that could be like i said somebody who's training for regionals somebody who's training for a marathon, or even somebody who's training for body composition. Because somebody who's at 25% body fat, um, and they're if they really get deep and down into it and they're happy and they're fulfilled, they're not going to have the motivation to get to 15% body fat. And if there's not a good you know, reason why, then they, they shouldn't be. Because um, they're just going to chase something. And if they, what we found, um, and this is especially apparent with those who compete, they may get their accomplishment that they were looking for but when they get there it's kind of like a, a now what moment and they're like i did all that work and I, I didn't i don't get fulfillment out of it so why did i even do it 
So we, we're constantly talking to our athletes about why they're doing what they're doing and why they're training the way they're training. Because when the going gets tough, if you don't know that, it's you're not going to be able to do it. For External sure. motivation is not going to work. I think so, too. And, you know, the uh, – <clears throat> so one of the lessons from that was, for me, from the survival and the selective was, you know, just finding finding what drives you and, and setting yep. high goals that you have a high likelihood of not achieving. You know, so that person might – some of those, that 25% body fat might want to get down to 15 you know, it might it might be a high goal for some people. For some people, it might not take that much discipline to do it. Yeah. And the satisfaction that people get from when they set a really high well, – in my presentation, I eventually talk about setting unreasonable goals. Like pick something that your chance of succeeding is actually really low. Mm-hmm. And there's a good chance it'll – you'll find – if you're – it'll teach you to kind of be um, resourceful, to keep working hard. But at the same time, it'll also – if you – people – studies show if you have a – if you set a medium high goal and you reach it, your satisfaction is lower than if you set a high goal and actually don't even reach it. Yeah, and yeah. Just the the process and the journey to that higher goal is more fulfilling than just a mediocre yeah. goal. Yeah, because if you just and, and I think a lot of people do. A lot of people I coach um, or have led through my training program, they just don't have very high expectations of themselves, and they they don't have a, a good why. And, and part of it is sometimes, as a coach, can be my fault. I haven't helped them find that, but they have to find it because some people think they want to do something, and they say they want to do it, but if they really don't, if you haven't figured out their legitimately why they want to do it, what's really driving them, they're going to give up at the first sign of adversity. Yeah, well, and too, the, the, I like the <clears throat> borderline unrealistic goals, but you have to have realistic action plans and in understanding what it takes to achieve those goals. So. Yeah. Um, Precision Nutrition is a big nutrition company, and they have a, a really popular article that, that it has everything laid out of what it takes to get to, like, 8% body fat or something. I can't remember the exact number, but it, it says, like, I want to get to 8% body fat, and then it lists everything that takes to get that done, and then at the bottom it says, do you still want to get to 8% body fat? It's, the question is, like, all right, here's what that means. Yeah. Do you actually want to do that, or is that going to be – way less fulfilling than anything that's when people come to me about <clears throat> competing and and trying to get to regionals it's similar to trying to be elite in a marathon as far as the time you have to put in and the work you got to put in and not just participating in a marathon but being elite in a marathon it's like okay this is what it takes this is the hour that's going to put in this is the food you're going to have to track this is the sleep you're going to have to get you know you're going to have to work less than five hours a day and like and then they're like well i can't do any of that it's like well then you're not going to achieve. Then you're not going to do it. I like that a lot. That's interesting. I might have to think about something like that. For my, I was see the people that, if my <laughs> athletes are listening to this, they're probably thinking, "Oh no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> this is somehow going to." But I think what I had written in one of my in my presentation was I had talked about that most of us are not even close to achieving our physiolog- reaching our physiological limits, or our physiological potential. Thank, frankly, we're not even close. Yeah. And some of that is because. We just have surface desires. We're like, oh, it'd be cool to go do that. I think I'll yeah. do that. And like you said, you have to have a realistic action to get there. And well, sometimes and, that's the hardest part. And we have, like I said, we have these conversations all the time with our our clients, and we don't do it just to break people's dreams down. Like we're not right. trying to do right. it just to say this is not realistic. Don't do it. The reason we do it is to to get you more aligned with your true values and priorities so you get more fulfillment out of what you're doing. Because if you can't be a regionals competitor 
and and really if we get down to your true goals and values um, then you're going to get more fulfillment out of whatever we get to um, and I have a bunch of questions written over seven priority questions written down over there that we kind of go through that kind of get a, help us figure out what are our true values and I went through this a lot when I was transitioning from athlete to coach when I was making regionals I made regionals back in uh, 10 11 and 12 and then as I transitioned out of that um, forcibly transitioned out of that because I wasn't making it anymore um, but I had to go through that process of like am I still going to train to do that even though I can't get it or do I actually want to be do I want to coach more than I want to be an athlete and, and is that okay with me and I had to finally get to the point where I was done being an athlete and I wanted to be a coach and it was actually more fulfilling for me to be a coach than it was for me to keep training huh. even though I still love training I still enjoy training if I went back to training how I was then it wouldn't be as fulfilling because I get more fulfillment out of coaching so it's not a it's not a right or wrong when you have a conversation with somebody or an awakening that you realize you know what maybe I don't want to do a marathon maybe I'll be happy with a half marathon or maybe I just don't want to run at all it's not a right or wrong. It's just trying to get you more aligned with your true values. Because like we said, if you don't have that good why, it's not going to be fulfilling in the end anyway. Right. And I think, you know, people, <clears throat> like for my athletes, I I try to do, I, I think it's okay for them to fail along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't want to set them up for failure. Right. So I try to do everything I can to get them prepared for whatever they're doing. But I hope sometimes they fail because that i think drives home their why they remember their why if you just keep achieving things again that satisfaction is going to be low and they're going to forget their motivation or their motivation is going to change um and they got to keep challenging them yeah well i mean all the i mean we've all seen all the greatest in the world all have their stories of failure i mean michael jordan you know the michael jordans of every sport they've all they all have their stories that most people know because it's public and they've all come from something that drives them. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I had written for my group a while back from one of my Wednesday Wisdoms that I, call, I, was, I called myself the quitter because most of my life I've been the biggest quitter. Most, <laughs> no, it would surprise people to know it now, but I've been the biggest quitter ever. I tried to quit. I was pretty decent at football. I tried to quit it. My dad wouldn't let me. I quit <laughs> basketball to try to prove a point. They never lost another basketball game. <laughs> The rest of my high school career, I quit everything. Good point. I quit. Yeah, really, that worked out well, didn't it? You think I would have learned? I played a year of college football. I quit that. I quit college. I didn't finish college. I've always been a quitter, and it was as soon as the going got a little. I never won, put much into it, so I always underachieved. It was just, it was almost my thing. I was like, I'm going to underachieve, and then I'm, I'm not even going to put myself out there to fail. I'm just mm-hmm. going to fail, and I'm like, well, I really didn't try. It was really self-handicapping. It was self-sabotaging. And it took, really, until I started running, to turn that part of my life off, for the most part. I mean, I did that. I quit relationships. I quit everything. Yeah. I was just a quitter. And really, what I learned through running was, first, you know, that I was capable much more of what I thought I was. And I, got, I learned how to put myself out there. And I started realizing what you had kind of alluded to earlier, which is you, you do get a little tougher when you suffer some. So if you go through some suffering, whether it's emotional or whether it's physical from training, you're going to get a little tougher. Um, and so a lot of the lessons I learned were just from quitting. And then I, I didn't have a why for any of those things. I never found my why. As an adult, I've learned to find it, and it's really powered me yeah. 
a lot better. What well, one of the things that I think about with that stuff is is learning through suffering is being vulnerable and making sure you're putting yourself out there to do that. And that's another thing we talk about a lot. When I was <clears throat> Because when I was training to compete, everything lined up for that. I still had the business, but I trained twice a day. I had my meals planned out per- perfectly. I, my wife let me go to sleep at a certain time. Even when I was on vacation, I trained twice a day, and she was on board with that. And like everything lined up with that. And when I had to go through that, you know, transition, I had to say, you know what? It is okay that I don't even want that anymore. I was just trying to tell myself that I wanted it. Um, but, and I don't know where we're at on time, but this may be somewhere we can end at, but OPEX, we have a shirt, and it just says Sunday on the back. And regionals competition is, is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and the, the basic premise behind the shirt of Sunday is basically like, this is it. This is your moment to put yourself out there and be completely vulnerable. This is, whether you're going for a podium spot or whether you're just trying to finish the weekend strong, like this is your opportunity to put everything on the line and, and be vulnerable and see what happens and learn from it. Whether that's, it doesn't matter where that is. All that is is you putting yourself out there and learning from it. I like that. It's tough to be vulnerable, and that's a big, uh, we, have, we have plenty of time, but it's, uh, being vulnerable in that way is a big, that's a that's a powerful thing to to hit on because I see even, even some of the really good athletes as far as locally endurance athletes, <clears throat> very few of them, are willing to put themselves on the line without pretty much having a, an assured with some security. With, they know they're gonna, they know they're gonna finish in a certain time or at a certain pace. Because and that's good and bad. It means that they're willing to train and do everything they need to to get to that spot. But it also limits them a little bit because they're not willing just to throw caution to the wind sometimes and really and really go for something that's super unreasonable. Because the more they train. The more prepared they are for what they're doing, their outcome is more likely. I think it's the difference between those that go from good to great. I mean, you, you yeah. have to be vulnerable. You have to put yourself out there, which means, going back to what you said earlier, you have to fail. You have to be in a position where it's you're not sure what's going to happen. And that's what I've always said. The only reason I would ever do an Ironman is because I'm not sure that I could do it. And yeah. so that in itself makes me want to do it because I'm not sure that I could even accomplish it because I'm not a swimmer is the main thing that scares me. But like, like people talk about suffering and the pain that I put myself through in CrossFit. And I'm like, yeah, but I've been doing it for 10 years. Like I'm comfortable with getting dis- uncomfortable with wall balls and kettlebell swings. I'm not comfortable with getting uncomfortable in the pool, which yeah. is scary. And in the gym, <laughs> you know how long it's going to last. Even when yeah. you're in the most... You're in the most agony. You're suffering the most. You know. I'm comfortable with it. You know how long you got. It's only going to be another minute or two. Some of those slow burn extended sufferings, they're a little foreign to you because that's not the the side where you came from. Yeah. But even like the the marathon and even a full marathon, people are like, did you not have this big feeling of accomplishment after it? And I was like, no, not really. Maybe this is my own arrogance or whatever. But I was like, I know that I can run that far. Like, it's just running. And, and I, I don't mean that to offend any runners, but I'm not trying to win the race. I was just trying to accomplish it. And for me, I knew I could accomplish it. Um, but like I said, with an Ironman, with that swim on the front end, like, and even the bike, like, I, I just don't know that my body could actually do it, which is what drives me to even want to do it. And I think people should find themselves or, or look for opportunities there's a there's a song that I'm trying to think of right now, but look for opportunities to do things for the first time. Oh yeah, and do things that 
are are scary and which because that makes you be vulnerable and that makes you learn about yourself so do you think you couldn't do or you aren't you're uncertain of the outcome if you try to do an Ironman because because of physiologically you're not a very good swimmer or mentally you're not a very good swimmer which I think makes all it scary of it. it's, or it's uncomfortable on all perspectives because I've never swam more than 400 meters straight and that was because it was in a little mini triathlon I've never run past a half marathon and I've never been on a bike past 10 miles so th- all of that is adds up to having a lot of doubt and and whether or not I could even accomplish it have I done a lot of, of um, tough challenging physical elements in the gym yeah I have but nothing like any of that stuff it's a totally different animal when it's one modality when it's just you and that modality for a really long time, there's a lot of mental stuff that goes on there. Um, and then just physically, it's a totally different thing as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that makes it. And not to mention the training for it. I mean, the training is just training. as grueling as the as the thing because it's every, you know, I have to take that time away from my family and, and put time into those events. Um, so, that yeah, there's a lot of factors. When I uh, So when I signed up for my first my first and only Ironman triathlon. It was my first triathlon. I had, I had known when I signed up was a year before the Ironman and I had never done a triathlon. And I, it's kind of a funny story because it's probably the most mad my wife has ever legitimately been at me. Our triathlon group had gotten an early registration offer from Ironman Chattanooga where we could register before registration opened to the public because we were a local because mm-hmm. we were close enough. And so I said, I, and those are expensive. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, I didn't know how to swim. I didn't own a bike. And I was an okay runner, but I just, I was only probably a year and a half from my cancer diagnosis. So I was still in that five year fear window where you're not sure you're going to live five years. So, you know, I had to start tackling things that I had thought about doing before that I was scared about. Suddenly, I thought, now is the time I have to do that. So I Your told her. changed. It's got stronger. It yeah. changed. I mean, that's a, it's, just completely different but i told her i said i want to do the iron man in chattanooga and she kind of said you're just an idiot because one you don't know how to swim i think she said it kind of (laughs) she's not that mean i know what she was thinking but so i didn't have a bike you know i I had an old piece of junk bike and an old mountain bike so i could ride a bike that wasn't a problem but you know, an Ironman is 100. That that ride was 160 miles. Probably something miles. like the bike you gave me to try to ride up here. That was a good bike. You yeah. just never rode it. <laughs> but uh, she was pretty upset because I didn't know what I was doing. But my why was so powerful that I was just. And I remember I played the cancer card on her. I said, I don't know if I'm here in five years, so I'm just going to do it now. And it turned into a great thing. But I was at the same way. I had I didn't know how to swim, and I was scared. I didn't like water at all as far as swimming. Mm-hmm. And so. That powerful why just the switch just went on, and I just and the funny thing is now I don't want to do another Ironman right now. The, the yeah. why is gone. I accomplished it. The day of the Ironman itself, and even the training leading up to it, was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was really challenging, but you know it was the, that it was kind of what you said about finding something to do for the first time. Yeah, that was the first time I did it. Now doing it the second time. I'm going to have expectations of myself. I have right. a baseline now of I have to do better. The day of the Ironman, I had, nobody had any expectations for me because yeah. I had never done a triathlon. I was out there to have fun. I've never had so much fun in one day in my life. <laughs> well, maybe, sorry, Claire, the day we got married <laughs> yeah. was that much fun. But the next closest, <laughs> after the birth of our son, is the Ironman. 
But uh, but I think well, those. I've heard that said a couple of times. I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, and it's usually coming from either a, a cancer survivor or somebody who's who's survived a, a near death experience. Of like, if you can get that, if if everybody could somehow get that feeling and live the rest of their life like that, and we we have that saying, and we use it kind of backroom. But James says, you know, you're gonna die one day, so accept it and start living. And like that's that's what we try to do with ourselves and our clients is like, look, you're going to die one day. This is going to end. So figure out what you're doing and, and do it and go after it. That's interesting because I think that's one of the reasons I like coaching people is I didn't start coaching anybody until after I was diagnosed with cancer. That was I, I was interested in leading people along a similar path that I had had for running, but it's changed now to where I want to pass along. I, I don't want everybody to have to get cancer. Right to find the same mm-hmm. intrinsic motivation that I found through yeah. it. It's hard to pass that along. But right. other people have, you know, stories of pain and loss and, and struggle and adversity that can motivate them just as much. You just have to pull it out. And sometimes it manifests itself in different ways. Some mm-hmm. people pour all their resources into building a business or, you know, yep. doing being a better husband or something like that, which you can do all these at the same time. But, you know, you know and, and you don't have to go... If you get diagnosed with cancer or find your why, you don't have to go do an Ironman. That's not like the absolute rule you have to That'd do. Be a good requirement. We might have to think about that. <laughs> but I think uh, I don't know. I just think that there's so much to be explored there. And if you read this book, Endure, by Alex Hutchinson, it's really like I said, you're only halfway through. Another one that we both read a while back was called "How Bad Do You Want It" by um, Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald. And it's the same thing. It talks a lot about the mental approach and your why and understanding. And, you know, for a long time, we all had an understanding. And I, when I first started running, I was this way. I thought of everything that happened to me was like man as machine. If I could get my weight, my body fat percentage, if I fueled just right, if I rested just right, if I did everything right, fit, good yeah. race results should immediately follow. Right. Well, sometimes I would do everything right, and bad race results would follow. Yeah. And what I really started to realize was most of those times, I can, I can look back and see positive results or when I felt best about my athletic performance. Usually, it was times that I was not that was either after stress, had, after a major stressor had been removed from my life, mm-hmm. or when I had a really powerful why. Mm-hmm. You know, the, another book that that I like, and I don't know if you ever got around to reading it, but um, I'm Here to Win by Chris McCormack. I haven't read that one yet. It, well, it's different in the sense that it's just it gets into his head. So where these other ones are just kind of talking in theoreticals and, and uh, Endure is kind of more physiological, but this one's literally just him talking through his head of, of his why and his purpose of why he did everything, why he said the things he said, why he did the things he did in the race, and like even during the race, his mindset and like, giving different facial expressions to different athletes as he passed them it's it's really cool of how he what was literally going through somebody at that level's head because we're never gonna really know what that feels like because we're not gonna be at that level no i don't think so he's if you don't know chris mccormick is he was a i believe he's australian isn't he i think so he's an australian um triathlete he was a world champion ironman triathlete Mm -hmm. also known to be a bit of a brash character and he talks about that in the book it's interesting. it's interesting that you would you've talked about this book before and I find it interesting that someone of your personality could pull something out of 
a guy like him, but that's it's it proves yeah. there's there's a lot of crossover depending regardless of what your personality is. But well, I didn't have a whole lot more. Uh, do you have anything else you're thinking about about the there line, was something about else that I thought about um, that I I'm drawing a blank on. I wanted to get that I'm here to win out. There was something you else but I can't remember the, now. We should get um, royalties for sending all these. Uh, yeah, we should for all these books. <laughs> um, we did talk a little bit about. Uh, some of the books, How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald, Endure by Alex Hutchinson, and uh, I'm Here to Win by Chris McCormick. Um, I would recommend checking those books out. If you uh, listen to my last podcast, which was called Extreme Achievement, I talk about some of the books in there. Um, Another good one is um, How Champions Think by Bob Rotella, I think is the name of the book. We'll put these. What we can do is yeah. I'll uh, Mike and I will talk about this up, off afterwards, and we'll put some of these in the show notes. If you're interested in checking them out, you can. Um, but I think we're probably out of time. I think there's a lot more we can talk about. We'll probably pick this up again um, sometime in the next few weeks, maybe focus on diving a little deeper into specifics about how somebody can, what they can take away from this and actually, you know, give them some actionable items. Yep. Um, yeah, I think that would be pretty definitely interesting. Definitely some, some questions you can ask yourself, some exercises you can do, and, um, yeah, some things that can help. You know, change your perception of the stress or help change your intrinsic motivation um, for what you're doing. That's good. I feel like we really just scratched the surface on this, so we're going to have to come back to this. Yeah, and if you, if, if, I don't know if you take comments somewhere or something, but if you can, we talked about a bunch of different topics. So if, if people can, you know, leave comments or something on, or maybe some, some of the things that we touched on that we could get deeper into, you'd like to hear us go deeper into, or some things that are related to this topic that we could go deeper into. Yeah, that'd be great. So if you listen to this, if you listen to it on the Podbean app, you can make comments, um, and uh, you can tell us what you liked, what you'd be more interested in hearing about. Um, You can also email me, Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at stinkyfeetathletics.com, and uh, we'll record another one of these. We'll take a little deeper dive. I think it's limitless how far we could go into this. Mm -hmm. Next time we'll have maybe a little more specific format. We can talk about certain topics that you guys would want to hear. So. Um, that's it for now. Thanks for listening to the Relentless Forward podcast. Thanks to uh, Mike McElroy for um, showing up and dropping some wisdom bombs on us. <laughs> and uh, that's it. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.